May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. It's all good. That's what the kids say these days. It's all good. It's sort of a slang way of saying, no worries, no problems, you know. Don't worry, after all, it's, it's all good. So somebody calls you on the phone. I know you're surprised maybe because they call you on the phone. They didn't send you a text message. But they call you on the phone and, uh, and you're on the telephone with them. And the planet's all aligned. And, and while you're talking to your friend, the call waiting button, you know, sound. Somebody else is calling you at the same time. And you say, your, well, hold on just a moment, and you, you click over. <coughs> Maybe it's your mother or your daughter, I don't know, somebody, somebody and, and you, you're on that phone call, right? And so you, your friend's on hold, and, and you're on the other one. If I'm on the phone with my mother, you know, I'm like getting off, you know, i got to finish this conversation before I go back. And, and you finish, and you go back, and, and guess what? Your friend's still there, which is another thing that's shocking you today. And you say to your friend, hey, thanks for waiting, sorry it took so long, I was on the phone with my mother. And your friend will say, it's all good. And, and you continue this conversation. This is the way it works, right? And, and people use it in all sorts of ways, too. Um, it can be passive-aggressive. You're in high school or college. Your sweetheart breaks up with you, and you say, it's all right. It's all good. You know, I'm a, it, it's, it's sort of, um, you know, sarcastic. Uh, I'm okay. I'm not, I'm not bothered by you. I, you know, you don't, you don't cause me any anxiety. And like all figures of speech, it can become annoyingly habitual. If you know people who like the it's all good, they use it a lot. You know, it starts to kind of, um, sorry, I forgot your birthday. Yeah, it's all right. It's all good. Okay. Um, I hate broccoli. Yeah, I know. It's all good, though. No, it's not. You know, I don't like broccoli, you know. Or my goldfish died today. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. It's all good, though. No, you know, um, did you see that train wreck on the news the other day? Yeah, I know, right? It's all good, though. No, it's a train wreck. It's not all good. It's not all good at all. In fact, it's not even a little bit good. So don't do that. Don't say it's all good when it certainly is not all good. But that's sort of what happens, right? These figures of speech kind of creep into our language, and we say them when we don't even really mean them. In Christian theology, we used to have a way of saying it's all good and sounding really, uh, and we still use it, um, it's called adiaphora, A-D-I-A-P-H-O-R-A. Adiaphora. Adiaphora means matters of indifference. It comes from ancient Greek language. Uh, it's where we would, in Christian theology, you would use it to distinguish between matters of faith that must be believed and matters of indifference, things that you could think and let think. You know, you like this, I like that. Whatever, we get along. Uh, for instance, I know this young woman, uh, uh, she's the daughter of a friend of mine, getting married uh, th- this fall. And her church, the, 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 part, the church that she's a part of, she would not allow its clergy to perform wedding ceremonies outside the doors of their consecrated buildings. So it had to be in a building of their denomination consecrated by one of their bishops. Otherwise, no deal. So she wanted to have a, a wedding in the park, and they would not allow them to have one. You know, you could, you could do it in a church or find another denominational minister to do it. We're not sending people out there. Now, there are some Anglicans who sort of agree with this. You know, I mean, you know how Anglicans are. You find two or three, they got four different opinions. And so you, you get them together, and some of them like that. But by and large, most of us, most of us would say, this is adiaphora. It doesn't matter. You want a, a wedding in a church? We've got buildings for you. You want a wedding in a park? 
We'll send a priest. You want a wedding on a tropical beach and you're willing to fly a clergyman there? Joe Boisel is the guy for you, right? <laughs> when it comes to locale for holy matrimony, adiaphora. It doesn't matter to us, generally. It's like the color of the carpet at church. You like orange, you like red. Yeah, whatever. Version of the Bible. You like the King James, you like the Cotton Patch Bible. Whatever, it's, it's all good. And it's a nice sort of position to have on a lot of things. If it's a matter, if it's an issue that doesn't really matter, a matter of indifference, think and let think. It's really a great way to live, to say, you know, it's all good. (laughs) Unless it's not. You know, unless it gets to that point where you can say, yeah, but not here. There's there's a line, this and at this point, no longer can we say it's offer, it's all good, because there are some train wrecks that are real, both literal and metaphoric. And when we get to those, we have to be careful. We can have this annoying habit of saying it's offer when it's not. You probably remember a bishop from New Jersey who said one time, I won't mention his name, but he said, and I quote, I can say the first four words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God. But I choke on my vomit with the rest. A bishop, a sitting bishop, who wrote a book and said, I cannot, I cannot agree to any other word in the Apostles' Creed save for the first four words. Now, as far as I can tell, the church for 20 centuries has said, the minimalist thing that we can all agree on are the words of the creeds. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. These three creeds are minimal. All Christians from all branches of Christendom, you know, Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, Anglicans, Lutherans, Pentecostals, we all agree that these things are minimal. But this guy says no. It would be like you joining the Sierra Club and saying, but I hate trees. You know? <laughs> um... I love boxing, but I hate contact sports. You know, uh, really? Uh, you know, there's a librarian down the, the library, and she's illiterate, can't read a word. You know, it, this doesn't work, right? These, these things do not go together. Some things are not negotiable. Some things are not adiaphora. Sometimes it's just not all good. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews, I think, was trying to get across in this 13-chapter long, what I think is really a sermon. It's really a long sermon that maybe now he thinks not very long. If you read the end of it, he says, I'm sorry it's so short. Uh, but he has this sermon, 13 chapters of this sermon, that he is trying to tell people what it means to, to live a Christian life. And one area where he says things, it's not a matter of adiaphora. One area that's not negotiable is the area of worship. Christians, on the one hand, cannot worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Jesus, Yahweh, Jehovah. You cannot, as a Christian, worship this God and any other. I mean, that that is a line in the sand. Our God will not tolerate syncretism. Every Sunday we come into worship. The words of Jesus, the Lord our God is the only Lord, and you shall worship Him with all your heart, all your soul. He will not share space. And when we read the Decalogue, how does it begin? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. This is great in Hebrew. 
And it, it really means, you shall have no other gods in my face. I don't want to see any other god anywhere. No little statues, no little idols, no little uh, pet ideas even in your heart. The worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus is the God who demands exclusive worship. But it's not just the who. It's the how. And this is where we get a little nervous. Like, oh no, are we doing it right? You know, um, it, What does this God expect when we come into worship? I mean, are we standing when we should be kneeling and singing when we should be quiet? Or are we doing things properly? And we get a little nervous. And maybe somebody's sitting here saying, Oh, I hope he says with organ and hymnody in the King James Version of the Bible, This is what God wants. That's not what he wants. Um, you, you might be somewhere else, you know, along that spectrum. I hope he says drums and tambourines, because I really love drums and tambourines. I'm not going there. The writer to the Hebrews says it really does matter how we worship, but the liturgy he's concerned about is not the sort of liturgy that we find in the bulletin. The liturgy that he's concerned about is what I am calling a liturgy of life. Liturgy really means the work of the people. The, the liturgy, the worship of our lives is what he's most concerned about. Now, if you would, take your bulletin and turn with me to, to page 5 where the, where the New Testament epistle is. You don't have chapter, the end of chapter 12 in the bulletin, so I'm going to read it to you. And remember that these chapter breaks, they didn't exist when he wrote this. They were just one continuous line, right? And so chapter 12 ends like this. Let us therefore be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Now, I spoke last week about what that meant, about coming to God with a heart that is right. And recognizing that vertical relationship that I come before God as one who is not worthy to come before Him. And yet He bids me to come anyway. Reverence and awe. But chapter 13, verse 1, continues right after that. Let brotherly love continue. Hey, Philadelphia, Manetto. You, you hear this word, right? Philadelphia, brotherly love. Let brotherly... And listen, it's a command. This is a, the, the word um, uh, continue. Let it remain is an imperative. It's like saying, listen to me. <laughs> this shall continue. I expect you to do this. I think I've told you. Sometimes I'll say to my sons, take out the trash. And they'll start saying things like, can I do it in five minutes? Or, you know, right after Spongebob? And I say to them, hey, look, I'm not asking. You know, this isn't a question. This is a command. The writer to the Hebrews says, listen up. I expect brotherly love to continue, to go on. And what does that mean? Well, he gives us then a litany. This is what chapter 13 is. A litany of how to do this. What does brotherly love look like? Chapter two, or chapter 13, verse 2. Look there with me, will you? Show hospitality to strangers. Number one, how can I, how can I show a love of family? How can I treat people like their family? First thing you can do is welcome them. <laughs> Literally welcome them into your home. But I think even more importantly, welcome them into your lives. To have room for people. To care about them and be concerned about them, how their life fares. To, to, to make people feel valued. Verse 3, look there with me. Remember those in prison. 
remember, not just reflect upon, but actually do something about. Those in prison, particularly in this time, people were in prison because of their faith in Jesus. So be care- remember those people who suffer and those who are mistreated. People who are suffering need our concern and care. What does it mean to, to live a life of worship? It means to, to care for people who suffer. Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. This is a bit tricky here. Because there's no verbs, actually, in this sentence. The writer expects you to supply them. And so they're translated a little different. Um, in the King James Version, marriage is. It simply supplies the to be verb is. In modern translations, usually it's a, uh, a subjunctive. Let this be. But in this case, I think the King James is right. I think what he's saying, I think what the writer is saying, that there were people who thought the only way to live a pious life, the way to live a devout life, was to live a celibate life. And so anybody who got married sort of was a second-tier Christian. And those who were celibate and, um, and lived this life of, uh, of you know, lifelong chastity were, were better Christians. And he's saying that is not the case. Marriage is honorable among all people. That's exactly what he's saying. All, in fact, it's all persons, a masculine plural norm. Marriage is honorable among all. And I know this is a little dicey for a Sunday morning. And the marriage bed is undefiled. Nothing wrong with that, right? Nothing wrong with sex and marriage. That's literally what he's saying. The word is coite, the marriage bed. You might think of some other English derivatives from that. There's, this is good. It's only when you take sex outside of marriage that it becomes dangerous and difficult. Sexually immoral, porne, from where we get the word pornographic. And adulterous, those who are you know, involved in extramarital affairs. These things are dangerous and destructive. God will judge them. But even more than that, this is no way to respect the dignity of other human beings. It's not caring for people. It re- if you love one another, you realize... The damage that that sexual uh, casual uh, approach to sexuality can have. I, I remember one time this this elderly uh, gentleman. He was well in his nineties. Was a former president of Asbury College, Dennis Kinlaw. He said, he said, you know, I think a lot of the problem with pornography would be ended if people just viewed those women like they were their daughters. You know, then all of a sudden, no longer is this going to be a, a temptation, but you're going to respect that human being. I think he was right on about that. Well, the next one, verse 5. Keep your life free from money, from the love of money. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Greed is destructive. It is absolutely destructive. Because it makes you all of a sudden see the stuff that God has already given with disdain. Like it's not good enough. I mean, imagine you give a child a toy for Christmas and, and he opens a toy and he's like, oh, wow, what a great toy. And then his brother opens up a toy and he says, but I want that one more, you know. I don't like this one. In a lot of ways, this is what our lives are like. The, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, why don't you look at all the presents that are already around you and be really grateful for what you have. 
um, I was out golfing with a, a guy not long ago, and he says to me, um, we were talking about this this really successful uh, businessman, and, and he says, he says, Joe, I think he's even richer than you, kind of as a joke, you know. Um, all right, he, he knew I was a clergyman. I think he's even wealthier, like Bill Gates or somebody. He's even richer than you. And I caught him. I said, there are very few people richer than me. Because, see, I really feel like I'm a super blessed person. I feel like I have a wealth that, that can't be measured. And, and I really do believe that. And if he's wealthier than me, he must be one really lucky guy. And my friend says to me, he says, oh, but I'm sure whatever you have, you really deserve it. And I caught him again. I must have been on a good roll. I said, actually, no, I don't. See, that's the thing, is I realize that I don't deserve it. I don't deserve a bit of it. Everything that you and I have, we have by the goodness and the grace of God. We don't deserve, we don't claim any of it. And yet we're wealthy beyond measure. And the writer to the Hebrews says, do you want to worship God? Live like you value what He's already placed in your life. Live like you think that this is important. Realize that you're blessed. And then verse 7, last one. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Be mindful of your clergymen. Imitate their way of life, he says. And their faith. You know, this, is, this is the thing that, you know, that I hope to give most of in my life. That my, my whole vocation is, is, can I inspire people to believe in the Lord more? Now, I don't do it well, I know. You're like, oh, let me tell you where you missed it. I, you don't have to tell me, I know. I've got the whole list at home. But it's the wanting to. And, so, and I live in the same way, that, that following people and trying to allow them to inspire me to live a better life. That's what the liturgy of life is all about. It's about welcoming people. It's about caring for them. It's about valuing dignity of humanity. Rejoicing when somebody succeeds. Helping them when they're hurting and in need of help. It means loving God and imitating the life of Jesus in all that we do every single day. I've mentioned before that um, that I went to this little Methodist seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky called Asbury. And right across the street from Asbury Seminary is Asbury College. Now, Asbury College is famous for a lot of things, one of which is, and it, it's been around 130 years or something like that, that back in the 19th century, one of their first marketing publications, they, they sent out letters to parents and, and said, you can send your children here. You're going to think I'm joking, but I'm not. Because this college is 16 miles from any known sin. That's what they said. You know? And so they sort of became famous in this conservative little college and uh, you know, dress codes. They have chapel every day. Every day, Asbury College has chapel. And students' uh, attendance is taken. You must be there. And here's what even at Hughes Auditorium, this big auditorium, they have assigned seats. If you're a freshman, you get an assigned seat in the gallery. You'll be in church every, you know, every day at 11 a.m. for chapel before lunch. And you're going to be in your assigned seat. And if you're not, you're in serious trouble. February 3rd, 1970. You remember 1970? Was a, I mean, this was just months before the Kent State shooting. time when college campuses were on fire, where sit-ins were common at uh, college president's offices and all this sort of thing. At Hasbury College in Wilmore, Kentucky, the academic dean got up to speak. He was scheduled to speak in chapel that day. And he said as he was walking to the pulpit to speak, he felt moved by the Holy Spirit to, to take his sermon notes and slide them under the pulpit and said, instead, what I want to do is give my testimony. This is how I came to faith in Jesus as an adult. 
And he told his testimony. At the end of it, he said, I, I felt inspired to say to the students, if anybody else wants to share a testimony, come on up. And a young man got up and he walked forward after a few moments of awkward silence. And he began to tell a story about how he had been living a life that he felt like I was not doing in my life what God had called me to be, do and be. And I want to repent of it. And he walked down from the, the pulpit and he went down to the, to the communion rail and he knelt and began to pray. And all of a sudden another student got up and another student and another student. And pretty soon all these students from all over this chapel started coming forward. And they began to kneel and pray around the front of the, front, front of the chapel. That evening the academic dean calls the president who was on a trip to Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And he calls him and he says, I've got a problem. And the president says, well, what's the problem? He says, it's the problem's with chapel. This was at 7 o'clock at night. Chapel began at 11 a.m. that morning. He said, well, what's the problem with chapel? He said, well, it's still going on. So what do you mean it's still going on? It's 7 o'clock at night. He said, I know, it's still going on. He said, well, how, did, how is it still going on? Well, there are students, they're just praying. They're gathered around the, the communion rail and they're praying and they won't leave. And they stand up sometimes and they'll testify and they confess things and people pray for them and... They break out in song and it starts all over again and this keeps going on and on and on. And it didn't end on February the 3rd or the 4th or the 5th or the 6th or the 7th. And suddenly news channels from, uh, from Lexington, the television news came there. They're like, we heard what's going on and we got to see this. And so they came and they, uh, they, um, they did some reporting. We're asking students questions outside the, the, the chapel. And said more news stories. And it didn't end on the 7th or the 8th, or the ninth, And it went on the CBS Evening News and Walter Conkright's talking about it. And people were coming to Wilmore, Kentucky from all over the world to see what was going on. And they finally announced the benediction from the February 3rd chapel service on February the 10th, 1970. And the people were walking out of that. And there's, there's still videos. You can go online and read, you know, hear these uh, testimonies of people who were there. And they'll tell you it was one of the most moving worship experiences that I've ever been a part of. It went on for a week. It was the most amazing thing. And that's what we think, isn't it? It's one of the most moving, most powerful experiences of worship we'll ever have. When the Holy Spirit draws close. Maybe you've been in a situation like that. I was at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. You know, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet, right? I mean, that, this is really the thing that gets me going. And, and I was trying. The most moving worship. I think the writer of Hebrews would say, you know what the most powerful worship is? It's the sort of worship we live the under, other 167 hours of our week. The way that we go out into the world and treat people. Not so much about God drawing close to us as important and powerful as that is. But the love that we share for those people who are all around us. That's the most powerful way to worship. In the name of the Father and the Son.